Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Mo speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me, as in this episode, we're going to be speaking with Sid Thalakar, and we have a really in-depth conversation about the true meaning of wealth and the initiative that he's working on called Neighborhoods. And we really go to a lot of different places, starting from his childhood, growing up in Mumbai, what he studied, but then also how he turned his back on the capitalist system that he'd become part of and joined an ashram that had been started by Gandhi. Finally, we delve into what he learned there and how he's now integrated that in with the new technology of distributed ledgers and considering how we might measure reputation. I really enjoyed my conversation with Sid, and you can kind of tell that because this is actually the longest episode that I've done. So don't be scared by that, but you might have to break it up into a couple different sessions to get through the whole thing. What I'm trying to do with seeds is understand people's backgrounds in order to understand what they do today. If you enjoy this, then check out some of the almost 300 other episodes in the back catalog. And there's lots more information at theseeds.nz. And make sure to check out the show notes where there are a bunch of links as well. Now let's get into this conversation with Sid. All right. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Sid Stavakar to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you're on the founding team of Neighborhoods, and I'm really interested in that. I um, would love to find out more about it, and in particular, words like reputation um, and, and what that means in an online world, an online context. But before we get into that, I love to go back in time and find out about people's histories, because I think that sometimes helps us to understand what it is that they do today. And in your case, uh, I'd love to find out a bit more about your childhood. So if we could go mm. right back in time to say when you were five years old, what was life like for you? So I'm uh, within South Asian context, I'm known as a Bombay kid and was born and brought up in the city of Mumbai, which as you know, you and most people would know is a large city. It's about 20 million people. My parents actually came from different parts of India and so didn't actually share a common language. And so we actually ended up speaking, you know, English became our base language at home, but more like I brought it up because we ended up like, I grew up just surrounded by about four or five languages. And so as a child, you just pick up those languages. And as you know, growing up in that kind of environment, especially in 1980s, India, um, life was very communal and multicultural and I don't mean multicultural in the way we describe boards or, or uh, you know the way we use it today but in a, in a I would say in a more genuine sense every culture having its own distinct language cuisine way of being and you could say identity as well and so a lot of India back then relied on this interplay between cultures and so for me as a kid, you know, as a, as a five-year-old growing up in Mumbai, it was being immersed and steeped in these radically different ways of beings. And so often it was confusing as a child because you didn't have this one story or one way of being, you know, with my mom's side of the family, it was this way of being and these kinds of jokes and this, you know, this kind of sarcasm. And with my dad's side of the family, it was, you know, slightly more intellectual and academic and, um, and, I think that can be very disconcerting, but I think 
it also has its benefits in the sense you hold or you look at identities slightly loosely because you understand different contexts required to switch between different identities. Um, and so, yeah, as a young child, it was um, in that kind of environment. Um, I would say, you know, in India today, even today, a large chunk of the country still relies on communal or socio-cultural organizing for everything from commerce to engaging with you know each other and and that continues to be a dominant thread so for me yeah early childhood was spent um in that kind of environment and transitioning into the 90s there was a switch of sorts it almost feels like for me i was 11 years old when mumbai went through a pretty dark period it went through its communal riots and so as an 11 or 12 year old watching some of this unfold in front of your eyes, like people doing pretty horrific things to each other, you saw some of the darker sides of tribalism or communalism or community-based life. And I think that's very important to state here because, you know, today the concept of community is often romanticized without acknowledging and engaging with some of the darker sides of, of human psyche. Um, and so that to me as an 11 to 12 year old left a very dark, you know, very strong imprint. Um, and you could say it has formed some of the founding ethos or basis for my work today. Um, it's interesting to me whenever I talk with people to, to mm. try to trace back what they're doing today and then thinking about the origins. And, mm. and even now, you know, I can hear that there's threads that are going to come up later mm in mm -hmm. terms of community and, mm -hmm. and, and knowing who you are within a community as well. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in the bit that you were talking, you know, like different languages to grow up speaking one language in this context, mm -hmm. and then having a different language for this context mm -hmm. and a different mm -hmm. way of being. Mm -hmm. I just wonder what that does for someone, um, you know, like applying it in your case, what do you think that's meant for you as a person now as an adult looking back? How has that shaped you? in terms of, you know, potentially, I don't want to give you answer to you, but, you know, moving mm. between communities or um, mm. switching know, between identities. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about yeah. that. As it is with most people, right? Like you grew up in a certain way and you don't think much of it until you land mm -hmm. in contexts where that's not the norm. And so with my, with my wife, who's, you know, very traditional South Islander, Kiwi, as monolingual as it gets, like, for the you know as as i was talking about the stuff i kind of realized like it's 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 a thing it's quite unique what you know me or people from my background that have you know the way we experience life um and so as i've thought about it more the last few years it's it's not just the language and you can you know you sense there is a lot of emphasis in society today to think of multiculturalism culturalism as oh we speak multiple languages or let's use these particular phrases and we're there but i feel like underlying language is that entire cultural landscape um, and i alluded this to, to this earlier you know the kind of jokes that are permitted within a certain context or the way you hold yourself what is permitted what isn't and so from a very early age, I found myself a little more equanimous with these different cultural landscapes. And so you almost internalize the fact that humans rely on certain social fictions, you know, that take the shape of norms, but they're really just, you know, lines in, in sand at the end of the day. And so you kind of understand the fluidity of 
ideology or the fluidity of morality or 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 norms even and so i think at a very early age it teaches you to step back look at your own identity with a certain you know dispassion dispassionate you know detached approach and even when you're looking at other groups or other tribes or other communities you aren't evaluating them from a more absolutist frame of mind and i think some of that i find as a real what's the word like a source of safety for me to retreat to uh, in today's world where you find you know this absolutist universal judgment flying around across the internet and and the world getting more and more polarized and you kind of understand yeah ultimately we're all buying into our little stories and fictions and to actually not believe or to imagine that your story is the absolute universal truth is is the biggest fiction in itself so i think there's a little certain fluidity in identity that develops uh, which is standing me in good stead today it's really good i, I remember um, when i was a child i learned to speak spanish because we moved to chile mm. for a year so i was 11 mm. years old my mother's mm. actually from panama so it's a bit mm. of a a, a mm. collision of cultures anyway mm. <laughs> in that mm. she was born in panama my father's mm. from america so mm. i grew up in a quite a in a way looking back quite multicultural <laughs> similar yeah, to you yeah, you know like yeah, yeah. different different ways of being and different things even growing up then i lived in japan for 5 years and mm. when i learned japanese that's when i realized how much language can actually shape culture or maybe mm-hmm. i should say culture can shape language mm-hmm. it's an mm-hmm. interesting dynamic though and and particularly mm-hmm. for your project i'm really interested in the use of language and mm-hmm. how it gets used so we'll come on to this later but mm-hmm. in japan it's a very everyone knows i think very hierarchical you know you talk differently use different words for your mm-hmm. boss compared yeah. to you know the the mm-hmm. child who's just come mm-hmm. in the room and the architecture of language is informed by the cultural norms and mm. and the way that people yeah. actually treat each other yeah, and yeah. it i worked in a big company called Mitsui and mm. in Mitsui um you know people who started the same year they would talk to each other a certain way mm. if you'd started the year before that person was your senior so you talked to them a different way mm. and the person mm. who started the year after you they were always <laughs> your junior so you talk to mm. them differently yeah. too yeah. it's just interesting riffing off of this idea of language and culture and yeah. and yeah. meaning that's um yeah that definitely has been my experience as well sanskrit which i would say is the basis for most south asian languages has 78 different words for the word love right. um and it's like an understanding that love has different contexts so the relationship between a mother and a child or the relationship between friends like they're all different you know words to be used for love based on context and the same with you know other languages like persian and so i often joke about it like if you want to write poetry like these are the languages you should be using <laughs> not not english for example which can be great for communicating rules for building a road perhaps i like more it feels more technical right and so i guess yeah so you understand like languages open up dimensions open our doors into you know new dimensions and so you you see how cultures actually coexist and intermingle across dimensions um and it's not just um we have representation on our board from these but we're all really just operating under the same umbrella like that to me f- has always felt 
very what's the word almost um yeah almost suffocating because it's not a true expression of culture like it's only you know grabbing the surface bits of an iceberg and trying to like represent it as multiculturalism um i yearn for some of that freedom of cultural expression um which i've seemed to have personally lost over the last couple of decades and only recently i've started tapping back into um into these you know divergent ways of being almost well let's trace it as we go through it's just interesting to me the things that you do today and then mm. the sources and it looks to me like one of the fertile grounds of source material is the fact that you grew up in these multiple communities and mm. had influences from multiple places so talk us through your you know primary school high school years what mm. sort of things did you enjoy doing did you mm. you know having spoken so much about multiculturalism i was part of that part of south asia that benefited from this massive wave of neoliberalism sweeping across the world so the mid early to mid 90s was this moment when india liberalized it's a cloud you know western capitalism to really flow through and so overnight i went from a kid that had only you know we only had like one or a couple hours of television not you know just on national television right television was nationalized and there was just an hour or so of cartoons every day that all of us had access to overnight to you know the mid 90s standards of you know dozens of channels and access to content all all day long and so overnight we were just exposed to this you know michael jordan nike loving life right um, <laughs> and for a kid that's you know only looked at the levi's jeans from the outside you know from this very restrictive environment like to be exposed to that was was one of the most ex- mind expansive things i've been through because you could see you know on one hand you had communal riots in bombay and questioning if this really was the way to be and on the other hand you had this this efficient homogeneity of neoliberalism and all you had to do was you know let's just mute some of your messy cultural identity put on this identity of a very slick banker who's good at math and you have access to the world you know and and that transition into early 2000s this this meme of the world is flat everything is global you could be in india and like doing some things around the world like doing revolutionary things and i say this with with a lot of like i said like mind my mind genuinely expanded during those those years because overnight we had access to the world overnight all of these capacities that were repressed were you know could now find um could now be expressed um you i i was part of india that really benefited from this neoliberal wave so from high school where i was you know very stereotypical right the indian dude talking about mathematics and science like i was good at at stem subjects loved them um and so very naturally went into the engineering discipline very naturally went into the finance and quantitative trading discipline and i was part of this wave where global markets were sweeping across south asia um and ended up heading one of the larger trading desks during you know the mid 2000s to late noughties um and it can i just it, interrupt you there yeah, um just before please. we get into that part i'm really curious mm-hmm. about that 
transition that you're describing, you know, the Michael Jordan effect, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, as you know, I live here in New Zealand and I've, mm. I've lived here since the mid 1980s, despite my mm. accent. Um, mm. And so for me as well, in a way, um, I'm just thinking about our times. And of course, for the mm. younger generation, this is going to seem like, what are you talking <laughs> about? But mm. I, I also remember Michael Jordan and it had a huge influence in, mm. in New Zealand, which probably mm. in previous generations, it just wasn't there. Um, mm. And it just, it's interesting, just the cultural norms that start getting spread out across mm. the globe mm. and, and mm. what you're describing. And I'm just mm. wondering to what extent, yeah, <laughs> to what extent were we aware that this was even going on in, you know, 1992 when mm. the um, Barcelona mm. Olympics were on and the dream team mm. was playing basketball and all of a sudden, mm. Michael Jordan's popularity worldwide yeah. skyrocketed as well. Yeah, I think for me it was more the the three peats that the Chicago Bulls. So, oh yeah. So staying up, you know, till two a.m. or three a.m. watching Chicago, the Chicago Bulls beat you, you know, Utah Jazz. My, I can't believe I remember all of this, but um, there was this sheen around like participating in something global, um, and so fully drunk the Kool Aid you know, the American way of being, there was a certain liberalism. In, and, I, and I think to some extent that expansiveness, right? Like letting go of, I would say like, you know, a certain kind of bickering or tribalism in interest for a, you know, greater, larger, shinier global good. And um, yeah, fully jumped into it without the understanding or the awareness to question like, hang on, like, why am I, sitting here in India cheering the Chicago Bulls like where is the context <laughs> for that like there is there is that makes no sense but I still wanted the Nike Air shoes and you know signed up for basketball camp and learned how to play basketball and um, all of that I also remember you know what was it the Captain Planet right yeah uh, yeah <laughs> cartoons like Captain Planet streaming into our consciousness and I think I actually, as an those... aside, I wrote an article about Captain Planet. I'll send it to you afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wrote no, this, it. That's um, going to be interesting. As a, yeah. as a kid, yeah. I remember watching it. And then it was, I think it was the 20th anniversary. And I wrote an article about oh, I see. what what was it actually saying? I'll, I'll send mm. it. I'll put it in the show notes as well, because people might be interested to read it yeah. as a side side note. <laughs> yeah. So I brought it up because I, I think shows like that or cartoons like that shaped my understanding of social impact right or you know at a much deeper level like oh something needs to be done about the world this is how you do it and and i think that is important because yeah it, it almost felt like a very universalist way of approaching problems like this is the climate crisis this is how we solve it and 14-year-old Sid or 13-year-old Sid didn't have the awareness to question like, wait, this isn't my context. Why am I, you know, why am I jumping into it? But uh, I think just the wave of it all, because, you know, neoliberalism brought with it just this rising economic boom, um, this, like I said, like a, a very tempting globalism. And so you could actually see it solve some very serious issues on ground in countries in South Asia. Um, and so, you, you know, from the mid 90s up until the, the early 2000s or mid 2000s, I think it did some serious transformation in, you know, you could argue for the good. Uh, and 
because you're talking about like infrastructure right like roads and and transport and and that type of transport infrastructure financial inclusion um credit overall the material level of prosperity like rose you could say you could argue like a certain you know millions of tens of millions of people rising out of poverty um you could also argue at the social level my parents um were you could say shunned by their community for what is called an intercaste marriage you know between tribes between different communities and both of them highly educated my mom's a doctor dad's um an engineer and and management graduate prospered through this wave and so became leaders in their respective communities and that you could see how neoliberalism was also pushing back some of these tribalist communalist tendencies and for people to snap out of you know caste mentalities and you know looking at differences and instead talking about larger union with the world a larger you know you know striving harder to be better um and so i think even at a socio cultural level there was some serious good that flowed through and so i wouldn't look back at that phase cynically i think there was a phase that was much needed and you know brought about a certain establishment of infrastructure and socio cultural unification mm. um can i just pick up on one thing that you mm-hmm. said because i don't know enough about india yet mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but you mentioned the caste system and mm-hmm. i'm just curious then in your own family experience like was that quite a unifying thing to people coming together and getting married and and was there really strong opposition to it or oh yeah quite i i don't know how much i can talk about it. <laughs> i haven't asked my parents but my parents had to elope uh to get married they were shunned by their communities there was quite a bit of objection to it and so like i said they really had to pick themselves up establish themselves as very career minded professionals and because of their you know you could say incredible you know success through, you know by 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 embracing professionalism um they could show to their community this was the way to go as opposed to you know being mired in the traditional values which were bogging down a lot of people and so yeah the caste system you i would say there is like a larger conversation here sometime about the caste system like it's not when i say use the word caste system it's not i think the way most westerners you know look at it it's not necessarily a hierarchical system though it is but it's more like the caste system can also be used to define different communities and subcultures um and so that's also what what i refer to mm. when i use the word caste um and so some of that is pretty strong like you can't relate with or or engage with people outside of of your community because those community structures are used for a certain amount of socio cultural organizing so commerce is a product of that you know that cultural fabric um which is why you you can have you know like i said everything from commerce to the way people engage with each other is on that bedrock of that substrate of the caste system mm. and which is why you if we are to return to some kind of community based organizing you can't you do you need some you need better organizing at the substrate level you can't otherwise we'll go back to some of those tribal mm. tendencies well um, that's why i yeah. ask about it and it, it might mm. sound kind of random to ask about the caste system mm-hmm. but we're come we are coming on to neighborhoods in this initiative that you're 
heavily involved mm. in. And so it's really interesting to me, again, what are the ingredients that are making up one of the key mm. players that then is involved in creating this new mm. way of thinking about community and reputation? Because that, mm. that's interesting to me, the, your reflections mm-hmm. on the caste system in India, and then what is it that you're shaping through neighborhoods? Mm. Um, so maybe we can come back to this in a minute. Because um, I'm, yeah, I, I'd uh, love to... And just before we do, can I just yeah. add a disclaimer here? I am, by, you know, many people, if they're listening to this back in South Asia, will scoff at some of the things I've said, because, um, you know, as a Brahmin boy coming across, you know, sermonizing on the caste system, it's, it is the equivalent of a, a cis white bro talking about white supremacy. So I, I think we have to we have to add a disclaimer there that I don't claim to be an expert. Like all, all I've said so far is primarily just my experience with it. Uh, yeah. And I hold it in a certain amount of humility. Um, but I thought that needed to be said before. No, fair enough. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no worries. Well, well, we'll come back to these themes, I think, of, of relationship and community. Mm. Um, but mm. I'm curious, just continuing with your life journey, um, I mm-hmm. think we were up to the early 2000s and you were working mm. at, on a trading desk. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Or what, yeah. what, tell us yeah. a bit more about that. And also just to give us a sense of this extent to which you were embedded within the system, you know, to mm. put quote mm. marks around it. Yeah, business school, primarily because the global monetary machine rewarded anyone with good mathematics slash science skills, right? Like there's a certain kind of quantitative mindset that would just fly through that system. I think it was the early 2000s where there was this wave sweeping around the world of like the emerging markets, the BRICS countries in Brazil, Russia, India, China, um, almost as if, you know, there was this destiny that we had to fulfill. Um, and now that I look back, it's really like, oh, it wasn't a native, like it was a destiny that was like laid out largely through a Western way of being. <laughs> but, you know, going through business school, your your heroes are the Lehman Brothers and JP Morgans of the world. And so you are, you're operating from that mind space where, you know, you want to be that, you know, that equivalent in India. And it was very important for me to be in India. So there was a certain amount of romanticism with that Indian identity at that point, because you, like I said, we'd had about 10 years of neoliberalism and that's solving a bunch of problems. Um, and so there was almost like this, what's the word? Almost like this conviction of sorts, almost like this hubris of sorts that I held about being a banker, but being a banker for India and my role in the global mar- in global markets would solve a lot of problems for the region. So everything, you know, I, I believed everything from income inequality to building infrastructure to solving sociocultural problems could be done with global markets. To an extent, you know, that's also how the way, the way the system works. Like that's the power that financial systems hold over society. And so I did have a front row seat at it because early 2000s, like a lot of emphasis came towards emerging markets, like they were seen as the centers of, you know, where this transformation was occurring. And I would say I was at the right place at the right time, like this trading desk just expanded exponentially. We were, you know, like 50 people in size, um, doing billions of dollars of trade a daily on a daily basis. So it was a front row seat at how commerce works, how liquidity flows, how decisions we're making on the trading desk can actually trickle down or not trickle down to, you know, situations on the road, 
on on the ground um and so very interesting period i was i would say pretty grateful to be doing the things i did at the age that i was and that's just the nature of you know the average age of people on the trading desk and the average age of people in india and so yeah that was until 2008 happened um and then when you watch one of your heroes you know lehman brothers just overnight disappear starts raising a bunch of questions um and so there was a certain amount of questioning that went on at that point of time because you could see you know i think this is one of the humbling aspects of working in a city like mumbai like you could be like a city like mumbai has incredible income inequality you could be living in a you know multi million dollar house right next to someone who barely has a roof over the head and so while we worked in these really fancy offices that were plugged into the hong kongs and singapores and tokyos of the world we would step down for our evening chai and be confronted with someone who doesn't have their meal next meal figured out and so it was this constant juxtaposition of extreme wealth with extreme scarcity mm. and over the course of those years that i was there i couldn't resolve them like i couldn't see that gap narrowing in fact i would argue that the gap was widening um and you could actually see some of the socio cultural fractures that are more apparent today in society you could actually see them forming in places like india um So, so at that time yeah, if i'd come yeah. and met you and we'd had mm. dinner together mm. what what would have been your justification for what you were doing would it have been i'm making more money doing this therefore i can give it away or therefore i can help projects succeed or because it sounds like you've always had quite an ethical approach to things or 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 not mm. <laughs> what was it like at that at that point because i'm just curious I, to yeah, highlight I the difference between yeah. the person you were at that point mm. and then i know what happened next is that you actually mm. left that completely mm. for several mm. years and yeah. so i wanted to really understand the transformation that occurred between that that version of sid and the mm. version of a couple years later mm. yeah i don't think it was as much about me amassing a certain amount of money and then being able to do good with it i think it was this the belief that capitalism or economic systems could benefit a larger group of people so not only create shareholder value but also create value for all stakeholders so employees um you know producers suppliers customers and to an extent that is kind of true and so in the you know the early years that was definitely i i definitely think that system worked in that way for a certain period of time and so you know it, it's not like that has no basis like i think there is a certain basis of truth in it but by 2007 2008 2009 you were like hang on like all the values like shareholders seem to be making a disproportionate amount of gain compared to other stakeholders and because you're on the trading floor you can also see like all oh, this like stuff that's being said here in davos you know about stakeholder value is is great for a slide show but on the trading floor you can see those decisions being made in terms of like when companies are going to market like are they doing it to raise fresh fresh capital or are they doing it to you know pay out existing investors like like is the company going public for genuine capital expansion or is it you know cashing out like those kinds of decisions and and 
And so I guess because I was at the front line, on the front line, I could see that story didn't really hold true. And you could actually see on a monetary level, like, oh, expansion of assets is exponentially more than the growth in income now. For, so the early parts of neoliberalism, like I saw something like a 7x or 8x increase in my income. But towards the end, like you could start seeing, oh, that's tapering off. And, you know, just because I was like the super niche, white collared, you know, young employee, I was experiencing that expansion income. But for a large chunk of society, that expansion income did not occur. But instead, the greater expansion was in assets. And so that meant the best way to get rich is to be rich. And so there was like, if you just do the math, you could see like there's an exponential increase in inequality. Um, and that's just at the monetary level. Like you could also see, you know, at the social cultural level, the system, you know, not functioning as well. Um, and so while, you know, it was healing certain social cultural divides a decade earlier, you could now see them, you know, in, it, you know, increasing some of the fissures now. So, yeah. And it sounds like there's some some fissures, if you use that word, within mm -hmm. your own thinking about the role of capitalism, because you're seeing that disconnect from mm -hmm. you know firsthand. You're investing mm -hmm. in these companies, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm really yeah. curious about what then what then caused a shift. Because well, why don't you describe what happened next? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it was, I mean, it was definitely 2008, the 2008 crisis where you could see like, oh, these people I thought were in charge aren't really in charge. Um, and, you know, these people I idolized aren't really, you know, though it wasn't a sudden event. Like I think we've been talking about 2008 for a couple of years. It, it wasn't like this sudden calamitous event that no one. And so when you did some introspection, you were like, hang on, 2008 wasn't a black swan event. It is like, each one of us operating exactly as we were told to like, that is the norm. Like this is, you know, the system's going to throw up this answer again and again. Um, and so it was 2008. It was, I remember there was a, you know, big microfinance company that IPO'd around 2009 in India and microfinance was this, you know, I held a lot of, like I read the Muhammad Yunus book. I was a big fan of microfinances, capitalism solving for, um, but it was, you know, capitalism had ap appropriated microfinance and made it into this beast that the capital markets could fund. And so you could actually, you, you know, once the IPO had occurred, you could actually see stories of people on ground dying and being killed as a result of some of these microfinance experiments. Um, and then you could start seeing, oh, it's also bled into the sociocultural level. It's not just monetary inequality anymore. Um, and so that kind of pushed me over the edge. Um, and so I was left with a bunch of questions. I had no idea what I was gonna do with them um, because my entire formal education had been, you know, I'd only ever studied neoliberal economics. You know, I'd only ever studied that global markets are good. Um, I hadn't kind of come across any other kinds of economic systems or, you know, even ideological, philosophical, uh, you know, frameworks that I could work with. So that, that's where I found my Michael Jordan psyche running a little short. And so I was left with a bunch of questions that I did not have answers to. And do you remember the day when you thought, I'm going to do something about this? Like, I'm, I'm going to step away from this role that I've got? Because from, from yeah. 
I mean, there, there's, I don't think it was a day. I think it was over a, mat, a bunch of years. Like, so if you had met me in 2008 or nine, I think I would have been pretty cynical um, and resentful. Um, and there's like, like if you go through some of the old media, the stories about like, I used to do these TV interviews. And I think there's some story about the day I decided I was going to leave. Um, I think the cameraman turned around and said, so what's, what's, what's up? like you look different today and I was like what what do you mean he said you look happy today um and so that was the realization that I'd probably made some right choices in my life but I I I mean I think it was just a question of hey I need time and space to think through my ideology and my frameworks here um and it felt like there was a reckoning um it almost felt like for the last decade or two decades I had suppressed certain cultural identities and it was time to re-engage with some of them um, because that predominant one wasn't coming up with too many answers. So the next thing from what I can tell that happened is that mm. probably the the name that people know from India if they know anybody mm. yeah. is Gandhi. Can you describe where you went uh, and um, what it, what it, what it, what that place is, what it does, and and your role there? What was it that made it different? So growing up, when you're young in India, it's quite fashionable to 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 hate on Gandhi. Um, like it's not, it's definitely not cool in young circles to be talking highly of Gandhi compared to outside India. It's almost like, yeah, I mean, you know how these things are, right? Uh, because you know it's it's almost because it's too close to you so I hadn't really explored Gandhi I was quite averse to it because it was quite you know I'd always thought of Gandhi as a pretty moralistic narrow-minded individual and who wants morals when you can have Michael Jordan uh, like that that's, that was broadly my experience of Gandhi up until then but in some of my time after leaving the trading floor I um, I came across his autobiography for the first time. And I thought some of his explorations or expressions in there were pretty authentic. Like I won't, I don't think I entirely aligned with all of them, but I was pretty impressed or inspired by the depth of his inquiry, the authenticity with which he pursued it and the commitment to even expressing it. I was pretty blown away. Um, and so at that point in time, did some traveling around the country, explored different, you know, communities and experiments associated with Gandhi that were still alive. And I came across the Sabarmati Ashram in Ahmedabad where um, I didn't, you know, some people might know the historic salt march was carried out of. Um, and I think it intersected well with my search for identity, you know, there's, there's, but at the same time, it was this very, I was very drawn towards an authentic, intense, philosophical and spiritual inquiry as well. Because at that point of time, a lot of my social impact for good inquiries were coming up short, like I was coming across people and projects that were saying microfinance is the answer to all our problems. And, you know, we're a business for good, but really we're a business for shareholders. Uh, and so those conflicts just weren't satisfying enough for me. You could say I was, you know, a bit of a, you know, an entitled brat to, to say that's not good enough. And I want, want to 
I want to take some time and explore deeper. And and I have had my share of uh, feedback from people who thought that of me because you know on one hand the world was burning and I chose to you know spend time hanging out with a bunch of hippies in an ashram. Um, and and you know I that's that's always questionable. Like you know I I don't think that is removed from question, but it felt appropriate for me to get into that kind of environment. And so that the ashram today, I should clarify, is not a functioning spiritual ashram. Um, it was originally imagined during Gandhi's time as a laboratory for sociocultural experiments that could be replicated around the region. Um, and today operates as an ecosystem of different nonprofits and community-based initiatives. And so it was really an opportunity for me to volunteer with um, a lot of people from very different backgrounds. And more importantly, it was really humbling for me, like to just get into work without using my head. And, you know, when you're working with someone who's been doing something for 70 to 80 years, it's quite humbling. You know, me with my bag of intellectual frameworks and, and business plans was quite silenced by the sustainability and legitimacy of some of these projects. And all I could really help with was just, you know, doing simple things like fixing a roof or cleaning a toilet on some days. Um, and I was quite happy to do it and, and learn through that process. Um, but that's, that's what my life there was like. And there's interesting blogs that I'm embarrassed about that are still up and floating around the internet. But, uh, <laughs> it's interesting it was... though, the, um, the contrast, I guess it's a, mm. it's an obvious point to make, right. But to go from trading desk, billion dollar company. <laughs> yeah, it's been things. romanticized. Like there's been articles, uh, some, I think someone framed an article like media really picked up the story and like Forbes magazine and a bunch of others like published these stories about the analyst who sold us Ferrari and other, you know, framed it in that way. And to be honest, like I also romanticized, like fed into that a little bit because it was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it was quite, it was quite, like I said, humbling for me to experience that. So just shift. trace us through that journey then, like mm. at the beginning part mm. of it, it's not, I mean, let's just be completely honest. Part of it was mm. selfishly motivated in some ways because mm. it's like mm. I'm doing this for myself mm. to yeah. get a better understanding. Yeah. I have the funds to be able to do this, yeah. to go away, yeah. to yeah. choose to have two pairs of clothes mm. rather mm. than it being, a, you know, I'm in deep poverty and necessity. Mm. Um, mm. But at mm. some point, it sounds like it did shift from being kind of like this is a cool thing to do to being actually learning mm. a lot from the people there would that be accurate or yes yeah i think it there was like you said there's certain amount of indulgence there and there's something about like that person who embraces poverty out of choice right like like i don't want to romanticize it because i've like a ton of people have romanticized it and i don't think it's entirely right to people who are in that situation you know, on a daily basis, which is why I've, you know, distanced myself from some of those conversations. In fact, in, there's this joke um, about, like, I think, what was it? It takes a village to keep Gandhi's life simple, right? So, like, Gandhi and his way of life in the 30s and 40s was like this very austere, like, simplistic life, but it actually took, like, dozens or hundreds of hundreds of people, like, to just to sustain that simplicity. And so I think in the same way, you know, for to embrace that kind of uh, material simplicity is also, you know, there's a certain amount of indulgence in there. Um, and I, but I think it was important because one, I think it, 
liberated me to that point where my monetary footprint was really low. And so a lot of these questions of, but you have to have X to survive. I just chose to drastically reduce the denominator and it was shockingly low in, you know, in my first couple of years. And so there was a certain amount of like ambition that I'd kind of ticked off. Like I don't have to listen to those people who claim that my, you know, I have to live this particular way of being or live life in this particular way. So I think once I was liberated from that, I think I was more, then I began questions of, well, what do I want to do? Like if I'm not obsessed about money either for it or against it, like what, what is my ideology? And that's when I started coming across this whole stream of distributed economics. Um, and not too many people know about it, but in the 1930s and 40s, especially around India, there was this whole stream of what's now known as Gandhian economics, um, but you could say it was it's distributed economics. It was adapted to some way in some way by Schumacher in the West through this book called Small is Beautiful and still continues. And to be honest, I see it in some strains in the holochain metacurrency universe as well. And so I actually ended up engaging with Eric Harris Brown one of the co-founders of Holochain during my time in the Gandhi Ashram because he was associated with the Schumacher Institute. And, and at that point of time in 2013, 2014, I was doing a lot of speaking and talking about these alternative economic paradigms that I was coming across. And so I was like doing these speaking tours and like engaging with different communities. And that's when I came across Eric. And that's where this intermingling of, oh my God, like these economic systems that were devised in the 1930s and 40s that ended up only, you know, operating in the scale of 20s and or dozens of people or hundreds of people could now take root and scale because of this new technology, distributed ledger technology. And so at that point of time, there was this serious, oh my God, like this could actually mean something. Um, and so it was this like I would say a period of awe where you could see this ultimate manifestation of this technology but then you also realize oh wow like this can actually happen in our lifetime and well, so, let's talk about that next yeah. just before we yeah. do that the thing that is really intriguing to me uh, is that you come the background I think we really understand now and then mm. in a way it's like the anti- capitalist mm, culture that you mm, were part of because it because mm. it was very I think you were involved in a restaurant where people give yeah. the amount for the meal yeah. that will sustain yeah. the restaurant yeah. right and yeah. so and, it was and, like absolute vulnerability we call it gift economy so it was you know what the guest decides is actually the right amount sorry go ahead I interrupted you yeah yeah but it's just I guess it's the contrast because you mm. come through you've come you know, how do we emerge in the world? You've come through from this mm. highly educated background. You've got mm. the role in the banking system, but now you're in mm. this other world. And in a way, it's kind of linking back to your childhood. Remember when we were talking mm. about the different communities mm. you were part of, where there's mm. different languages spoken, mm. different means of communication. In the mm. same way, you kind of jumped from the, the, the community you were part of to then this community. But mm. now what I'm hearing is that you're kind of emerging from both of them. And then mm. um, looking at how you can combine maybe some of the mm. concepts and the thinking of both. But before we talk about that, because I'm I, this is the essence, the heart of what we're going to talk mm. about is what's coming, mm. which is neighborhoods. Mm. 
but I heard you speaking about somebody who had a great influence on you. And I think he had mm. polio in his, in his mm. feet mm. or something. Do you mind good, describing yeah. him? But also because I like in this podcast, I like to strip away some of the veneer of the, of the mm. outward show, mm. I guess, and mm. get to the heart of people. And I, I also want to say thank you for sharing, you know, the way that you are, because you, you know, you're stripping back mm. how mm. it was perceived in the media and things. But I think mm. that that relationship with that person and then his kind of confession to you or his talking to you about some motivations affected you as well, right? Could you could you share about that? Yeah, he I would say was one of my closest friends. He passed away sadly years ago in, in a tragic accident. But in the ashram, he kind of represented the absolute inverse of Maslow's theory of hierarchy. And I bring up Maslow's theory because I think it dominates universally as this meme, right? Like it's almost crazy how much it architects the way we go about our lives. Like that there is this base level of security and sustainability that is required before which you can move to those higher things. And those higher things are, you know, creative expression, you know, fulfillment, or even like thinking about others. and you had Raghu who was from, I cannot think of many people with a more humble background. Um, like, I think it goes past humble. Like I would say it goes into meager, not even meager. Like I would say, I don't want to, I don't know what else, what other word I could use, but wretched, um, like bone crushing poverty in rural India, you know, from, from, you know, a system that has not been kind to his family um, had polio in both his legs um, because the polio vaccine had, had, hadn't reached their their community, um, and so literally walked on his hands. I think when he was nineteen or twenty, he chose not to be a burden on his family. Hopped into a bus, a public state a bus, state transport bus, with little more than a couple dollars in his pocket and showed up in a big city like Ahmedabad and in, you know, almost serendipitous magical ways found his way into the ashram where it was so weird to see him in this role, you know, using his hand pedaled wheelchair, serving people in the community who clearly have way more than him. Uh, like, <laughs> And so many levels, like not just materially, but also just physically, but also, yeah. And because you would expect I, that he might be the recipient of yeah, other people's yeah, yeah. generosity, but instead yeah. he, he was there serving others. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that was really transformational for the people receiving that service, because I think a lot of that is some of, you know, I would say the limitations of our current conversations around philanthropy, right? Like it is, it so operates within that framework of you have to have in order to give. Um, and Raghu just smashed it a bit. Um, mm. And so I would, like, I would say one of my closest friends spent a lot of time with him, would do a lot of this work, the work with him, like riding at the back of his little contraption while he was on his journeys through communities, quite humbled myself because at many moments he would be giving more than I was. Um, and many moments when I would be weak, he would be talking about like places that he would go to spiritually in order to replenish himself. 
to the extent he would on many occasions like i would we would often like i would take him to a cafe or a restaurant and you would see people pitying him and he had the magnanimity to actually hold their pity with a grace and i think that i mean you're not at that level where you're like oh stop pitying me like i'm fine but you actually have risen beyond that and you actually can hold their pity and say i understand your pity and it's okay um to the point where he's moved on because that's his life right like those moments will have just been like absolutely earth shattering for me i would say in that rubble that i found myself where i was trying to reconstruct my philosophical frameworks like i would say now you know my philosophical framework that i've now been reconstructed like i think he has played a central role in organizing because i think a lot of these frameworks like maslow's hierarchy etc need to be redone um this belief that people have capacities you know only when they are materially well off isn't entirely true i think there is a high correlation between material material prosperity at a large scale i'm not you know i'm not denying that um but i think i don't think that is the framework that we should be operating out of mm-hmm. and you see even today when we talk about projects like neighborhoods and reputation infrastructure it almost is you know you see a certain group of people looking at that conversation with yeah 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 but first it should be money right and reputation should be second right and culture should be second right like money should be first right and i you could say some of my conversation the ragu have helped me be very firm in the you know in in the belief that the ability to hold our identity landscape our own cultures architect our own lives is not a prerogative that you can have once you have achieved a certain amount of material prosperity i think it is a prerogative it is you know must be accessible by all people all the time um and therefore a lot of our work like neighborhoods comes from that ethos where material prosperity for example comes as a result of the way we have architected our own cultural mm-hmm. landscapes not mm-hmm. after we have you know so there in a lot of our project decisions you'll find yeah you know, um some of these aspects put front and center and it's confusing to people and 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 i think that is a you know conversation worth getting into well it's it's it, it's like most of the conversations i have on this podcast actually <laughs> this is mm. going to be episode number 291 so i've talked mm. with a lot of people about mm. sort of you know the the phrase i use all the time is mm. paradigm shifting that mm. we have a paradigm of thinking a way of thinking and the mm. paradigm itself gets shifted it gets it's get mm. fundamentally changed mm. so mm. the way that i phrased my question to you before like being a banker did you think if you made enough money then you could mm. help the poor mm. you know the 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 paradigm shift there is ragu you know he mm. helps people when he's mm. the one he's helping people who mm. probably should be helping him you know it's mm. like mm. it's the reverse order and mm. too often particularly in the west we um we don't view it that way you know mm. we we view it as well i'm i'm going to make more money and then when i'm really wealthy mm. i'll i'll give the money away then but i can't yeah. give anything now i have mm. to wait until i get more and i'm guilty mm. of this as well like there's mm. none of us are mm. whitewashed temples are yeah. we you yeah, know yeah. but 
but the reality is that as we earn more and as our mm. um y- you know incomes increase the mm. the funny thing is that often our expenses increase at about the mm. same level and i've met some very wealthy people who probably aren't actually that uh you know monetarily mm. they probably don't actually have that much to give away even though they the story they've told themselves is mm. when i get more that's when i'll be more generous but that kind of leads me to yeah, another yeah. point um which I, I want to talk about neighborhoods but the term wealth can you talk about what that means to you? Because mm. I think to me, that's quite a, a important thing to get clear mm. when we're talking about wealth, because immediately we can jump say, well, yeah, it's this many zeros in my bank account. That's how wealthy I am. But I think your understanding, and, and I think I agree with you, is that that's, that's quite a surface level way of looking at wealth. Yeah. Um... Thank you for bringing up these perspectives. Like I, I actually think there's a freshness to these and that we should be speaking about more even when we talk about neighborhoods. And with regards to wealth, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't want to frame it as look at this cool new revolutionary way of looking at wealth because it almost puts it as this very futurist conversation. And I think there's a problem with that because it's this isn't like, new ground we're breaking i actually think it's it's a part of like decolonization like that we are actually resuming our native sources of being you know wherever we are and so wealth particularly in indian south asian context has always included a certain amount of well i don't know you know i don't want to use the word spiritual but like let's say you know some kind of spiritual wealth but more importantly also some kind of socio-cultural wealth where you are in the network and even today like if you sit down with most south asians and tap you know below the surface level of the psyche i think most south asians will feel more secure in their socio-cultural wealth rather than the monetary wealth i almost feel more at home in social fabric than monetary wealth like intuitively monetary wealth to me feels like i'm 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 in orbit in the international space station and monetary wealth is my you know oxygen supply but if i have good socio cultural wealth i'm at home and my feet are on the ground and that's what i'm like you know more and and i'm not saying this as an elitist like i think when you tap below that surface level into you know more asian mindsets i think that's what you will find uh, and that's my, obviously, it's my opinion and my assessment. Um, and so I say this upfront because I'm not trying to say wealth should be this broader spectrum and then it kind of gets pigeonholed into this, oh, only if you're like a millionaire can you start having conversations of it. And, and, I, and, I, and, and I think if, we, if neighborhoods becomes that, then we failed. Um, I actually think like that concept of unbundling of wealth as this multidimensional thing that is accessible to everyone right now is what neighborhoods is about um and i see this again and again because in western contexts people do tend to pigeonhole me as oh this is super elitist right like this is part of the singularity silicon valley crew right like you're talking about like traveling to mars and you know certain one percent of society getting this right and so that i think is failure and and I guess, like, I've had these conversations with Gemma, my wife, like, in, in, 
in some of her understanding like every now and then when she comes across south asian culture she is just amazed with how you see this cultural complexity that exists at all levels of the economic spectrum so just in the way you know people might cook their food like a simple indian curry for example like as stereotypical as that there's like this complexity to the curry and the average indian householder knows exactly how to orchestrate that complexity and that's just something that doesn't map on to well in let's say western circles because you know you don't have those complexity of flavors um and so i bring up this you know example because i think that access to complexity is not an elite thing like it is it you see it in the way crafts or arts for example are embraced and engaged with in india like in most indigenous cultures you would see it in you know even in agricultural indian communities you would see it um at the household level and so you might have barely put together house houses made of clay and mud but beautifully ornamented um and so that's really what the conversation here is like with wealth like i actually think financial inclusion isn't about giving monetary wealth to everyone but for people to understand like oh my god like we have access to so many dimensions we can actually orchestrate ourselves unlock all of our expressive capacities and feel that abundance as opposed to thinking about when you know the new zealand government will roll out monetary currency to us um and so yeah i like i want to say that up front and so that concept of wealth to me is expanding the definition of monetary wealth to include reputational wealth and you know many other forms of capital mm. and obviously distributed tech plays a very important role in that because these concepts would be very hippie and fringe without the technology so that's that's why but it comes back in a in a way it comes back to our earlier bits of our conversation talking about different cultures and different ways of doing things like i'm just mm. thinking even because a western perspective i think we we kind of understand what it is or what we would be talking about and and mm. you know it's the typical you know mm. this person has this house and that car mm. and i mm. want to have mm. that house and that car it's, mm. you can kind of really broad brush stroke it but there mm. are much subtler ways of thinking about the concept of wealth and mm. also the concept of of what is truly rich in a person's life and mm. i think for a long time we've ignored indigenous perspectives mm. on mm. these sorts of concepts so i'm mm. speaking to you from the country of mm. aotearoa new zealand yeah. where we have the maori people or the mm. native indigenous mm. people mm. and and their conception of wealth um mm. th there's certain phrases that are just not there's no good english equivalent english is very like we we're talking yeah, about before yeah. it's yeah. it's too um too Flat, much uh, uh, utilitarian sort of language mm, but there's yeah. there's words like kaitiakitanga which means mm. stewardship in mm. other words rather mm. than me owning this piece mm. of land mm. i i hold it but as a steward for mm. the next generation mm. And that's mm. a concept that to a western mind it's like no I own mm. it my name is on the title mm. and that mm. is my mm. land mm. as opposed to um I'm holding it for my children's children's mm. children you know mm. and and mm. so there there I guess what I'm saying is I think we're getting to hopefully 
and newer ways of thinking of these paradigms and mm. a bit of a broader understanding that mm. it is a, a particularly given environmental crisis and you know mm. global warming and everything like mm. we have to rethink how we think of what mm. wealth itself is mm. because mm. it might be like you say that the 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 poorest person is actually the wealthiest because of yeah. the richness of their life yeah. in yeah. other other ways yeah. yeah and i would push that further and say well what manifests that richness and i think all of us have access to those expressive capacity all of us have those expressive capacities it's about creating systems that recognize those expressive capacities and allow someone to formalize them to amplify them and to benefit from it so it almost feels like we're these high definition individuals but communicating to each other through this low bandwidth monochrome cable and there's just so much loss of signal there yeah and yeah, and, and that's so yeah. So I think we're finally here. I know that mm. for people who are listening to the whole podcast, well done. <laughs> but but the point of doing this and laying mm. all of this groundwork is that we're now reaching the point when we can talk more fully mm. about neighborhoods and what mm. you're doing there mm. and what you're hoping to achieve as a mm. team. Um, and, and I'm really intrigued by something I heard you say in another interview, which was talking about the adjacent possible. So the adjacent possible. And mm. I'm, I'm just curious to understand what is neighborhoods? What is it that you're hoping that it can be? And then, and then let's mm. go from mm. there. But describe to us a little bit. Um, you might have to back up a little bit because I know sacred capital is in here mm. as well <laughs> as a stepping yeah, yeah. stone between, you know, yeah. your, your time um, and what yeah. you were doing and what you're doing today. But yeah. yeah. So Sacred Capital played a key role in designing this reputation infrastructure. Um, and I'll back up a little bit, like what was distributed ledger technology really enabling? This is really boring and people's eyes glaze over every time I say it, but keeping records in newer ways. Like that's what this is really just about. Like mm. this tech, like, Technologies, this technology is letting us keep track of things in ways that might be beneficial for us. And what I mean is distributed ledger tech allows groups of people or micro networks to say, this bit of information is important to us and we decide to maintain it as an official in non-tamperable record. And traditionally groups did it through some kind of sociocultural organizing. Like maybe it was religion, maybe it was a caste system, maybe it was some certain indigenous social technology that was used. But obviously, you know, again, like this connects with our conversation up front. Like, I don't want to romanticize some of those techniques because I've literally seen people burn each other alive as a result of those technologies uh, because they can be mired in certain levels of patriarchy. And as a brown person, you know, who's been steeped in this community life, I can actually say it. I can actually call it out. <laughs> And I feel like we, as a, you know, the world did this hard pivot away from those systems towards this very global ledger keeping mechanism, which is like, there's this ledger in the sky, let's call it like the Davos global elite that's maintaining records, like everything from banks to Facebook to, you know, centralized systems that keep records for us. And I think we gravitated towards those systems because we were just done with being screwed over by each other. And 
these newer record keeping systems allowed us allowed for a certain transparency in our interactions but obviously it was you know the issue with that kind of centralization is there's an arms race to control those ledgers right and there's a certain amount of violence that's embedded in that system and more importantly it's costly right like if every transaction between you and me is being maintained in that central ledger and by transaction i also mean something like a like like me liking or clapping on your article is stored in that ledger there's a cost associated with it and not just a monetary cost but also a social cultural cost of like who decides what gets stored in there and steven and sid can't decide that this like or clap is relevant somebody else has to decide that and so we've surrendered certain amount of cultural architecture to you know people um who do this for us and so distributed ledger tech opens that dimension that little wormhole and it's up to us if we really want to go through it as 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 society um where ledger keeping can now be done at a local level and so if we're a group of 500 people i don't know sharing memes with each other on a daily basis instead of zuckerberg storing that information for us it can actually be stored locally and because it's done locally it drops the costs and so reputation data which is really boring when i say it can actually be stored in a non tamperable way locally and so our group of people could decide the number of particulate matter you know uh, the amount of particulate matter in the air is important to us and so we get to decide whether or not we want to track it we might decide to track the number of strands of hair on our head like for whatever reason like that's something that's important to us and so there's a certain like liberation that's underway because of the storage of information and so that throws these bits of information into the arena of wealth because for something to be classified as wealth there's a certain amount of non tamperability there's a certain amount of formality certain number of network effects that that it needs to acquire right like like gold acquired that status because it is imperish non perishable um banks or the us dollar acquired that status because you could go from one town to another and exchange that dollar for a good and and so with reputation data as well or any kind of data that we store on these ledgers it's starting to acquire that status um because distributed ledger tech allows for that um and so what's underway and i think this is really revolutionary is that kind of gatekeeping that was done by the keepers of the ledgers because they obviously were keeping ledgers for us but there is a certain trade off right like there's a certain power they acquire over society in terms of like how you orchestrated or architect society was being done through a certain democratic process you know somewhat democratic you could argue like some countries are you know governed really well but at the same time there's like global companies that aren't that are almost outside of governance um and so we were beholden to these gatekeepers or holders of our data um and so now that politically has opened up new ways of organizing and so i think there's like i tweeted this out a couple months ago we demoed some of this ledger keeping on a raspberry pi and that's because holochain tech you know actually allows for maintenance of ledgers on really light computing devices so you don't actually need like a big bitcoin rig for this you could be running it eventually you know on your apple watch for example but it's kind of wild to think oh the way 
my community orchestrates itself is just being held on this little device on my wrist. Like that's how light it is. We don't actually need the heavy weight of Zuckerberg or like the government maintaining records of who's a defaulter and who's not. We can maintain those records. And so I think it is like this massive socio-cultural political transformation we are witnessing, which opens opportunities. Sacred Capital spent some time designing these, these kinds of systems, which would you know, allow for new kinds of social coordination. And the social coordination relies not on consensus, which is like a way we've you know, traditionally done it, but I say it's mimetic mediation. And again, I think this connects to this conversation about me as a child, like switching between cultural contexts, because it's like, oh, you and I don't need to agree on things, but if we're you know, in a particular context, this is the different data and we don't actually need to arrive at consensus to actually do things to each other with each other. So it's, I would say, a new ways of social coordination in the world, neighborhoods looks at it and says, hang on, there's actually a manifestation possible here in distributed networks um, like the internet. It could also take the form of very silly things like people sharing memes with each other. And so maybe there is a real possibility of manifesting this at some kind of scale here. Um, and so neighborhoods is like an attempt to rush through that wormhole. I think there will be dozens of attempts and, you know, each one feeding off each other. Mm. Um, so there's no attempt to say like neighborhoods is the way I think, I think we have to attempt like multiple ways if we are to get over the line with this. Mm. But yeah. So just in, in terms of yeah. practically speaking, you know, and, and even thinking to the future, if not right now, mm you know, what, what would be success in six months or a year or five years from mm. now? Like is, is neighborhoods itself as a project? Um, maybe, maybe best we talk about that first. <laughs> is it mm. as a project going to then create the infrastructure where I can come to the neighborhoods team and say, I'm running a podcast, mm. you know, I've got 800 and whatever likes or, you know, mm -hmm. followers on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. but I'm not really getting true engagement with them. Um, mm. Through neighborhoods, could I then set up an ecosystem where the mm. Seeds podcast followers could join and, you know, I could get mm. recommendations from them and people could contribute and gain reputations mm -hmm. within that. I'm just mm. trying to make it quite practical yeah. or, or yeah. thinking that yeah. through. Yeah. So that that's the first bit. And then also, yeah, what does success look like? And you know, mm. in a couple months, in a year, because mm. these things take time. Yeah. We all know that, but yeah. I'm curious for your reflections at this point, because it's mm. at the day we're recording, this is 11th of January. So it's like the start of a new year. You've yeah. just had yeah. your first release of, um, yeah. you know, bringing the community in and, and getting mm -hmm. financial backing. So yeah, I'm mm. curious about how you're thinking about it right now. Yeah. So neighborhoods is quite specific. And it's, I'm glad that it's so specific because there's a bunch of people who've been following the work have been like, okay, this is for me and this isn't for me. And so Neighborhoods says this is organizing tools or cultural organizing tools for, um, for this, sorry, give me a sec, for the scale, um, organizing tools for the scale for, of 500 people and upwards. 
and that's really important to state because we're not like if you are thinking of like creating your own little community of 50 people that live together and do things together i don't think you need distributed ledger tools for everything because that's the scale at which the human mind is actually well equipped to for sense making uh, and the kind of sense making you're making is like multidimensional you know and you want like this isn't an effort to replace the way friends coexist and engage with each other like i think those systems work just fine um we're talking about systems which operate at the scale of 500 people and upwards and might be doing fairly utilitarian things with each other and so i love the example of people sharing memes with one another um because it is playful it's light it's very specific and you know memes have a specific culture to them like i for example love dark political humor and the zuckerverse just fails me because all it tends to put up is like just generic whatever grabs eyeballs kind of humor and so with neighborhoods you would have tools to say just an example the algorithm or the order with which memes show up in this group is articulated by the group so you could say you know we use likes and claps or likes and upvotes and we also weight your rank on the basis of who liked you so if it's like steven and sid's community like if steven and sid have liked you like you people start showing up you know more in the, that community and so neighborhoods makes that cultural arch architecture really easy so you don't need to be a developer you don't need to have fundraising skills which you know have, have been the friction tr traditionally with this kind of stuff right like and so with what is known as replang and the rep interchange like this stuff can actually be done through very easy front ends um so you don't need to even speak hollow chain to be able to doing to be able to do this but you could literally say i want to spin up my community and there's like you know tens of thousands of people and this is how we order stuff um and the rep interchange also ensures like portability of data so let's say steven has a funny meme community and I like that community's dark sense of humor, I can actually port likes and claps data from his community. So that addresses some of the tribal effects that we've seen with communities in the past where, you know, they just become larger silos because there's, you know, there's benefit to staying locked in. And this is the beauty of reputation data when it comes to wealth. Reputation data is non-zero sum, whereas monetary wealth is zero sum. And so you might contribute to Steven's community, but because we're allied, you're you can actually be validation and validated in hundreds of other communities because reputation data you know can be replicated it's not like monetary currencies um and so neighborhoods allows for that kind of cultural architecture which sounds super fancy and super hipster but it's not it's really just letting people organize themselves in distributed environments on the basis of what's important to them and so it could be meme sharing, it could be gaming, it could be content sharing, like maybe you want to have a conversation around climate change. But, you know, instead of every random person who walks into your community having an opinion, you could, you know, just pop in a cultural template which says only the top 1% are heard in this community because it's actually like intellectual and research based and not what you heard on a podcast last week. Um, Whereas, you know, a meme community could be much flatter or, you know, it, it so it allows people to give, it gives people these surgical tools um, 
without development skills. And this is really important to have in distributed ledgers because you know that that algorithm hasn't been tampered with because at a later stage that could start becoming people's sources of revenue because you might create a network of podcasters and the most appreciated podcasters could be earning a stream of revenue. But instead of relying on Zuckerberg to validate all of this information, this community can operate themselves. And so you could start introducing credit limits, you know, for the most appreciated ride sharers or, you know, or, or for podcasters. Um, and so it creates organizing on the basis of culture as opposed to organizing on the basis of, oh, we need podcast uploading tools, so we have to go to Patreon. And so it flips things around on its head. So we think, you know, the traditional way of doing things, which, you know, in, in the business environment was whoever's got the tools, you know, that's where you go. And then you have to kind of buy into Zuckerberg's culture or Patreon's culture or like, or Substack's culture. But actually for the distributed environment, you can flip things around on its head. And so it's not Patreon where we can find Steven. We find Steven in Steven's neighborhood. Um, and Steven gets to articulate the culture for his neighborhood. And tools in the distributed web or in, in the holochain world start getting really generic. And so neighborhoods also runs what is known as a, you know, a low code marketplace where you can actually pop in these really generic tools to share podcasts with each other, to play chess with each other, to share your couch with each other. And so it creates this interesting organizing model where you don't go to an app like Tinder to meet your soulmate. You might be part of like Steven's community or like a memeing community or like, you know, some other community and they have a dating plugin within the community. And so you date people within existing cultures. Um, and so it's like a flip on its head. And when you think about it, it's almost absurd that we rely on Airbnb to tell us who's safe and not safe to host in your house. Like it should, that should not be the case. Like why is, why is Airbnb making that decision for us? Um, and so I think it's an interesting allow, point. In, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you keep going in a second, but just to comment mm -hmm. that it's an interesting point in time, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, 2022 January, you know, mm. and just thinking about where we are and, and what it is that is mm. capable uh, or mm. what is capable. And in a way um, mm. we kind of think, you know, we're fishing the fishbowl. We assume mm. that the way things are is the way that things mm. will be. And mm. Facebook, as an example, has been mm. around now long enough where we can't mm. really imagine a time before it. But mm. there was a time before it <laughs> and mm. there might mm. be a time after it, you know? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and so I guess what, I guess what I'm trying to highlight here is that you're describing potentially a world where we've moved beyond the centrally controlled mm. um, algorithms mm. and, and mm. players like mm. a Facebook or, or a Patreon mm. or mm. whatever. Mm. And, and you're actually giving agency back to the individuals mm. to control their identities. Um, yeah. And, and it's like yeah. up until this point, it, it, it may not have been possible to even do that, but with certain mm. innovations and you've mentioned Holochain as, as an example, you know, mm. it, it's now something that would be possible. Yeah. I think there is like, like I said, this wormhole has opened because of these technologies. And, and so it's really a function of whether or not we can, you know, orchestrate ourselves enough to rush through. I will point out, it's not like 
individual agency that we're excited about. It's literally cultural agency. And when we say cultural agency, it's like culture exists within people, right? So it's like a group of people saying, oh, wow, we have the agency to, to enable this. And so it, it almost puts tools or business in this very generic place where I believe they exist. So it's if we were, you know, a real life physical neighborhood living in a town together, one model is, you know, allowing for Dunkin' Donuts to set up its base in our town because we need our donuts. Or another approach could be, hey, this person in our town loves baking. We actually love their flavor and they set up a little bake shop or bakery um, where they sell donuts. And so what's special about the donuts? Oh, we love that person and we love the flavor. Like it's generic. There's no like Dunkin' Donuts brand behind that flavor. Mm. So we say businesses or, you know, platforms are about specific tools and generic culture. Like the culture of Dunkin' Donuts is generic, right? Like, but there's a specific tool there, like they're making donuts in a very efficient way. But neighborhoods flips that around and says neighborhoods is about specific culture and generic tools. So we exist because as a neighborhood, because we share a certain dark sense of humor, but we also play chess together. And so that chess tool is just something a little widget developer has developed somewhere in the world and it works for us and we're fine and we layer a culture over it. Um, that couchsurfing tool is not a massive platform. It's just a little tool that we layer into our membrane, into our community. So you have interesting possibilities where you might say, hmm, I have a couch open in my living room. I'd like to offer it out to people. And so you could say, I'm part of these 50 neighborhoods. I'd like to offer it to these 20 neighborhoods because I, you know, I think it would be interesting to have people from that community on my couch. Like I might love to get to know these people from these communities better, as opposed to casting it out on the internet and like rolling the dice and like random showing up in your house. Um, and so it could also lead to interesting commercial applications where I have a certain amount of capital. I'd love to give it out for, you know, as loans, but I trust these 15 communities, you know, the culture in these communities with, with my money. Or you might say, I actually want to see this kind of value creation. Therefore, I will give out loans to these communities. Like this is, you know, what I want to see. Or you might, it might lead to resource sharing. Like, oh, I have a hundred limes in my backyard. I'm going to offer them as a gift to this neighborhood. I'm going to offer it at 50% to these neighborhoods and at market price to these. So it's almost like this cross membrane liquidity that you'll be able to provide. And so we haven't talked about this much, but eventually we'll roll out commercial applications through a container called bazaars. And this contrasts with my experiences, you know, with global markets, because global markets removed context from money. Like when you're trading global markets, you could be trading with someone from Tokyo, have no idea who they are, but you're fighting with, you know, with cents with them. But bazaars is actually commerce, but it's like firmly embedded in the social cultural layer. And yeah, so I think there's this excite, like this is what I'm excited about over the next few years is like tilting commerce more towards bazaars as opposed to global markets. And I think that's when that conversation of financial inclusion starts getting very real because it's like, oh, I'm a valued member of this meme community or this podcasting community that has now translated into my livelihood, that has now translated into my credit limit, that has now translated into my material well-being as well. 
Um, and so I think that's how we will approach it. And so that conversation of like people feeling like they can be abundant at all levels, I think starts becoming real. And the interesting thing there, I mean, let's just bounce ideas around, right? Mm. <laughs> if you start thinking in that terms, you mm. might have somebody who materially would be poor, their bank balance mm. is low, mm. but mm. reputationally is extremely yeah. high. Yeah. And so it, it, traditionally, if you went to yeah. get credit for that person, if they yeah. went to a company to get a loan, yeah. the, lo the company would say, well, you, you have, you know, mm. you have $2,000 mm. in savings. Yeah. And yeah. you, you, don't, you just don't have enough money. I'm not going to yeah. loan you because I don't yeah. trust you given yeah. those metrics. Yeah. But if what you're saying is true, then you could potentially say, well, actually, there's other metrics, reputation, mm. which yeah. come into bear. So the, the amount yeah. of money that you have to repay the loan, that's part of it. But also we can tell that you have a steady, um, mm. you know, you, you, I was going to use the picture of a job, but, you know, you, mm. you've got mm. some um, mm. regular source of income but beyond yeah. that you're also um uh on the um parent teacher association in your local mm. school mm. or you know you're volunteering at the mm. local swim club or something mm. Mm. so actually your reputation within your community is quite high yeah. even yeah. though financially you're quite low yeah. so i i don't know it's just potentially yeah, there's a lot of threads in there and, and real quick like I've experienced this a lot in Mumbai, like someone who worked for me, for example, wouldn't be touched by a bank. And that's because, you know, in South Asia, for example, only the top 10 or 15%, like the elites of that region would have access to credit from a bank. But that individual that I reference here, like he would have access to credit from his community that he lived in. So 50 to 100 people would line up to give him a loan. But often those loans had costs associated with it because it was, you know, very expensive to administer because there's no formal ledgers. So, you know, they would typically be paying like 10 times the amount of interest rate that a bank would because the efficiencies don't stack up. And there was a sociocultural cost, like he would have to live as per the norms of that sociocultural, you know, the landscape. And that was, I think, repressive in a certain way as well. Um, and so by formalizing some of these metrics into ledgers, it enables efficiencies and formality to benefit people. And so it creates this very interesting conversation around therefore what is wealth and therefore future generations, what will they experience security through? And so I think we might move into this conversation 10 years from now where we actively talk about a material monetary footprint. So you don't need $5 million to feel secure. You could say, I have you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank, but look at my reputation data that has, you know, that is formally logged. And so I don't actually need to print that money immediately. I have printing capacity so it's almost like each one of us operating like the Federal Reserve. Um, and so don't need to print and hold those monetary resources all the time. And that interestingly intersects with the climate change conversation, because we all know that monetary capital has a certain material footprint. Like if you think for your security, you need 20, 20 houses, you know, to be held as assets, like that has a material footprint. Um, and so it starts transforming, I think, the 
you know, the way we talk about a carbon footprint, we could start talking about a material footprint, a monetary footprint in very real ways. Um, so in a very high school physics way, like instead of just using kinetic energy as ways of doing things, you now have potential energy. And so you could also be storing energy in other dimensions and using them as a skilled in unskilled ways. So mm. I think so just it, talk us through um, mm. how this, how neighborhoods, I'm still curious about your mm. answer to what does success look like as well in five mm. years, but mm. um, just talking us through mm. normal or social media algorithms that we mm. use mm. every day, you mm. know, it seems like they're focused on selling me things. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. How, how will this be different? Um, will mm. that be part of what you're offering or how does it con contrast or compare? So and why would this would be have, better? Yeah. So groups would have cultural agency. Um, and so for a group to say, Hey, we like dark political humor of this kind, like the way Sid design defines dark political humor those memes show up at the top of everyone's feed. And so this will, we think, land primarily where specific culture is very important. And so things like sense of humor or aesthetic or you know, certain intimate activities like who you want to let into your home or whose home cooked meal you want to you know, you know, go, go like invite or, or experience. Yeah. Um, and, and so those are the specific places this lands. Um, and so success, we've set the bar very low in terms of use cases. So the use cases could just be, like I said, a group of a million people sharing memes, but you go to that neighborhood because you know those memes are on point, right? Like there's no generic shit getting in there. Sorry, sorry about my language. But in, so in that sense, like the bar is really low because this potentially hits scale, but in these very like niche specific areas where culture is important. Um, and I think and I guess once the, we the establish that, that, yeah. Oh, so I was going to say, I, go ahead. I guess the point is that the culture of that group is going to be shaped by that group. Yeah, rather than yeah, it being yeah, driven yeah. by a al algorithm Algorithms, or some other, yeah. um, you know, central yeah. organization that's doing it. Yeah. And I think that would be most attractive for a group. Um, and so personally, as an internet user, user on the internet, like, I think that's most attractive to me um, because I'm actively engaged with neighborhoods that I like and I'm making mm. active choices about it rather than stuff being sold to me. Um, and, so just in terms yeah. of a real world example, then um, mm. I'm just thinking about people who are older, you know, elderly mm. people, how mm. could it help them if it was built into an app? Um, yeah. What would it do? And I guess by elderly, did you mean people who aren't as familiar with technology or did you mean? Um, uh, well, I, I think I'm meaning, uh, well, I don't like want to give you the answer, the yeah. but, yeah. <laughs> but the, you know, the elderly who maybe mm. get food delivered to them or mm. carers mm. come in or mm. something, um, I can see yeah. some potential uses there, but yeah. just the yeah. real world side of this. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could go into like that category of more intimate 
care and interactions, right? Like, you know, last year, my wife and I had to look for a babysitter and we really struggled because there were these generic babysitter platforms, which were, right. you know, just like the Airbnbs. And that's like, Airbnb is not the same as picking a babysitter. Like, it's just not like, this is your, you know, nine month old child exposing. <laughs> yeah. To someone just randomly off the internet. Um, and I think the same with elderly, with the elderly, right? Like you want, you know, these networks to exist where there is reputation on the line, um, where, you know, scalability arrives through transit, transitive properties of reputation. Like, oh, I asked Sid, Sid asked Stephen, Sid knows Stephen well, therefore I know Stephen well. You know, that's how scalability and reputation occurs. Um, and so when those linkages are in place, like that's when you can have like care, for example, scale. Um, and so in a way, for, that's how real life works, isn't it? It's like, it is, a, yeah, I, yeah. I always view it as like yeah. a spider web of connections. Mm. And, you know, mm. if I have a 14 year old and mm. if she's available to babysit and mm. or, you know, let's say it differently, I need mm. a babysitter. And mm. so I ask my friend, John. And John's mm. John, I know he has a young baby. And mm. so I trust his judgment. And he mm. says, well, we used, you know, Sandy, mm. who's mm. down mm. the road. And, and I met her because yeah. her father plays tennis on yeah. Saturdays. And it's like, it's that level of reputation, isn't it? It's the mm. practical side of thing. So what you're trying to do is say, we could actually capture some yeah. of that in an online yeah. way. Yeah. And for scale to accrue to interactions from yeah. through that. And I think that's where ledgers could play a role. Um, and so I think what has been holding back people back is this, the friction of, well, does that mean I have to build an app? Uh, because, you know, what percentage of society today can actually do that? Like you either need to be great at fundraising um, or you need to be a developer and, and that's not, you know, that's not everyone. And so mm. the infrastructure we're building enables that to occur in a really streamless, streamlined fashion. So the low-code marketplace allows you to pick up widgets. And so what we're saying is, hey, if someone's built a chess widget somewhere in the world and it's working for people, that could actually be replicated pretty easily for others. So you don't need 50 different like today, for example, for podcasting, you might have 150 different platforms, but actually the tech is really simple. Um, and with most, well, that things, was where I my make, mind was uh, going is how, how to make this easy. Cause I'd love to give it a try <laughs> and, yeah. um, but I'm yeah. not a developer, but I do have a podcast. So how yeah. could I build a community, or, yeah. you know, or let's say something it. like ride sharing, right? Like the actual tools to build a ride sharing app is really generic and simple, but why is Uber valued at whatever $70 billion or whatever for that? for those lines of code, like that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and so, so, yeah. so to what extent are you at the end? And I'm just being devil's advocate mm. here. Mm. Is this all a dystopian view of the future <laughs> reputation? Are you saying, Stephen, you're going to have a reputational indexed number of 5.73 and <laughs> therefore we're not letting you into this other place over here or yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts? So, I would say neighborhoods would have failed if reputation data goes towards this universalist 
approach, right? Like this, there's a Black Mirror episode about this where people are like rating each other and it all maps into one universal rating of like, Steven, it's a 3.1. Um, yep. <laughs> and, and so I actually think that's where we land up if we don't do neighborhoods. Like techno-authoritarianism that we're seeing across the world today takes us there, like social credit systems, etc. And that's because it's being it's reputation being done with centralized tech and the point of neighborhoods is to say hang on like we actually have a window here reputation could open up all of these other dimensions and so the way the reputation changes are architected is all computations are contextually held and so what ports from one community to another is reputation data and ultimately what people will have access to is okay great steven's a five-star person in that community but what does that mean to me do i like so what we the interchange does is exposes the underlying metadata which is the timestamps and the likes and the claps and the who has given the like so it's not just important that steven has five thousand likes in sid's meme community some a third party would say but is Sid's sense of humor relevant to me? Like maybe it's stupid. Like I don't want those 5,000 likes. It doesn't make sense. And so it is pushing reputation towards a much more contextual, locally held. Um, and so because we're easing the friction of computa computation locally, people will tend to make those like sense make more locally rather than be like, oh my God, Steven's a five star something. Um, mm. But that's, that's how we're nudging. That's how we're architected. And so we think like, that's how it will flow. Um, and well, again, it's a fascinating yeah. project. And what we'll do is catch up again in a year's time or so, see how it's traveling. <laughs> and hold, me, <laughs> hold us accountable. I think that's yeah, see, see, see where yeah. it's getting to. Um, just yeah. thinking about neighborhoods itself mm. as a, as a mm. project, you know, mm. I, I, I'm a member in the discord and there's mm -hmm. lots of people there, you know, yeah. sharing ideas about yeah. it and stuff. Yeah. Um, what relationship is reputation within mm. neighborhoods itself going to have in terms of decision-making going forward and, and things like that? Yeah, it's a good question. And are we going to be the change, right? Like that's the question. Um, and the short answer is the current way we're architect, like the, the, the environment that we've kind of grown up in or we've taken birth in doesn't actually allow for this kind of cultural architecture, architecture right? So neighborhoods doesn't aspire to be like this massive, well-governed democratic organization. And not because we want to be, uh, you know, this authoritarian leader of the world. I think our aspiration is to be a small organization that makes you know, decisions within a small group creates a certain prototype that takes shape and that's it. Like, like, and people will fork some of our designs, our plans. It's almost like, you know, today with Ethereum, you have like these tons of other forks of it and versions of it. It's more to like push, make a dent, push the bounds from where we are currently. And, and the hope is that more people will be inspired to create versions like neighborhoods Mm. Um, and so that's a political stance on it. Like it isn't to be the United Nations of the space. Like our aspiration is to be like a small project that does something that shifts the status quo. And then we go from there. And, and that's how we think of ourselves. 
And if people are interested in finding out more about neighborhoods, what's the best way for them to do that? So we're on Twitter as neighbor underscore hoods, spelled the British way. Our website, neighborhoods.network. Again, spelled the British way is, the, is a good way. You'll find links to our Discord and all other resources like our documentation, etc., all on the website. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, in the yeah. show notes, we can put links to things. So if yeah, you send me the good. links, then we'll just, I'll copy paste them in. Yeah. And um, said, I know one of the communities that we're jointly involved in is the mm-hmm. Edmund Hillary Fellowship. So mm-hmm. we didn't really get a chance to riff off of that, but that's a, in a way, that's an example of what community has potential to be. Yes. I think you know, it is a yeah, fantastic community. I, I don't know if it classifies as a, you know, capital N neighborhood, because, you know, I think it still operates at the scale where informal reputation is fantastic. Like I actually enjoy getting to know Steven in this multidimensional way and not like digits on a screen. Sure. Um, So yeah, I've had conversations with people who want to make EHF a neighborhood. And I think like, "Mm, no, I don't know if this is the right use case. I actually think. So it's it's right at that point. um, Because I think there's 532. So it's right at your cutoff point that you said 500, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, that's it's interesting a, though, because at, a, yeah. at in some ways the smaller groups wouldn't. Mm. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like, mm. you just want to keep it more as an organic, natural thing yeah. rather yeah. than systematizing mm. it. Whereas once yeah. you get over a certain level, it's mm. really hard to get to know mm. John and Jane and Julie yeah. and yeah. Yeah, I guess the question is formalizing. Do like I think there's a lot of beauty and and value in leaving certain things informal. And mm. so I think EHF is currently at that point where that informality makes sense. Uh, but who knows? Let's see. Well, Sid, it's yeah. been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I think this is going to awesome. end up being the longest episode <laughs> I've ever done. But um, part of that is that you've had a really interesting journey. And, and it was okay. really, thank you so much for your time and willingness to share. And also to just strip back some of the, you know, perceptions mm. <laughs> and, mm. and share you know, openly mm-hmm. about your feelings and things as we've gone through. Mm. Um, and I, I was really curious, you know, reflecting back now, childhood, different communities you're part of, mm. different languages, what mm. does that feed in? You know, we didn't mm. touch on it later, but the caste system, different, mm. um, your parents mm. themselves modeling the merging mm. together, um, mm. the, the, the capital markets, the work that you did within mm. the system, and then exiting the system to go and, and learn from mm. people. Um, and, you know, that had a huge influence, but then mm. it feels like you have kind of integrated it and now looking to be there as a catalyst to push boundaries. Mm. That's kind of the sense that I get of what your mm. vision is for neighborhoods. So um, I've really enjoyed Thank chatting you. with you and, and w- what we'll do is catch up again. And hopefully if, if fate allows, we'll be able to meet in person here in Christchurch in New Zealand yeah in the relatively yeah. near future and um, be able to have yeah. a chat in person as well. But I, so I just want to say thanks so much for coming Thank on you. the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for opening all of these conversations. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sid. For me, there was a bunch of things that stood out and I really enjoyed the conversation thinking about relationships and thinking about how we measure reputation. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog as well. And a quick shout out to all of those who are involved in the Neighborhoods community on the Discord. And make sure you check out the show notes because there's lots more details about the project in there. Until next time. Mm-hmm.